Lori Hanna's parents were delighted when their daughter started dating Brian Keith Freeman. The relationship soured and Lori's decision to break off their engagement had deadly consequences. Brian murdered Lori and then may have killed himself. It's an open case and the marshals need your help. Welcome to Chasing Evil. I'm Chris Gotzik. I'm here today in Little Rock, Arkansas, with the U.S. Marshals Eastern Arkansas Fugitive Task Force. And this is the first time that we've done an open case. So listen closely. The fugitive is Brian Keith Freeman, and we'll learn about him in a second. But uh, first, I want to introduce Jeremy Hammonds, who is the lead investigator, deputy marshal, and Kevin Sanders, who is the supervisory uh, deputy marshal. That means he's the boss in this office, right? Sure, why not? Uh, well, from this posh, swanky office, that would seem to be the case. Right, right. <laughs> and Laura Reed, who works for a phenomenal organization that we're going to learn about called Community United Effort. Welcome, Laura. Good morning. Good morning. You've been living with Brian Keith Freeman for you know many years, Jeremy, so why don't you tell us about him, and we'll jump into this case. So Brian Freeman came on to the uh, radar of the U.S. Marshals here back in uh, March of 2017, so we're, we're going at over five years on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, he is one of our cases that we have uh, yet to find. Uh, we're still looking diligently, uh, but he is he's our open case here. He's our major case, and, you know, we're, the, the hunt has been ongoing on this. Uh, this case has taken several different twists and turns, and, um, you know, we're still – trying to be hot on hot on the trail of, right. of locating him. But. Okay, we will get into that. Tell us why he's a major case for you. Okay, so in March of 2017, uh, Brian had an estranged relationship with a girl named Lori Hanna. Uh, they had been in a um, tumultuous relationship. Um, it was um, a lot of arguing, a lot of fighting. Uh, I think Lori finally had enough of it. I believe uh, Freeman was... Noted as being overly jealous and controlling over, uh, so she finally ended the relationship. Uh, Freeman, unfortunately, wasn't ready to end the relationship and couldn't let go. Right. Uh, so he, uh, on the evening, uh, later hours of uh, March 22nd, uh, returned back to the home that they had one time shared. Um, we're not really sure how he gained access to the to the home, whether he keyed in, if he still had a key, or if he, um, you know, just the door was left open. Uh, but anyway, he entered the residence unlawfully, wasn't supposed to be there. Uh, Lori was uh, asleep in her bedroom, and uh, he entered the bedroom there and murdered her. How did he murder her? So the Arkansas State Police are the ones that are actually investigating the the homicide aspect of it. And uh, from that investigation, it was determined that he had gone in, uh, used a knife uh, that they believe he brought to the scene, uh, and he, he cut her throat. What does that tell you about somebody who does something like that? I mean, there's plenty of ways that... People are murdered, but that seems quite specific. Sure, yeah, that's it's it's definitely has a vengeful aspect to it. I mean, it's if you look back at like O.J. Simpson, Nicole Brown, uh, the reason so many people point the finger at O.J. is because of the way the crime was committed. You know, she was her throat was cut ear to ear. Uh, there was definitely um, there was there was something other there than just being a random killing. There was something personal there. Uh, mm-hmm. Just like with with this case here, it was very personal, very. Uh, if you look another person in the face and murder them, that's that's something totally different than you know just randomly shooting someone. So, um, yeah, this was this was him not letting her. If he couldn't have her, nobody can. Right. He flees the scene. How do you guys come into the case? Yeah. So the uh, the morning of the um, the twenty seventh is when I got a phone call from state police. You know, we we work a lot of cases with state police, so we we establish contacts whenever there's a an active case going, a fugitive on the run that they usually call us because uh, that's that's what we specialize in is tracking fugitives. And this homicide happened in Arkansas. It did. It happened in Ward, Arkansas, on the 23rd of March, 2017, and then the 27th is when we got the phone call, and evidently, there the family had been concerned because they hadn't heard from from Lori for couple of days and uh so they actually sent the ward police department to do a uh 
a welfare check. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the uh, the officer, I believe, went in through the bedroom window because the other uh, the front door was locked, and they were just kind of going around the house checking right. windows to see if they were open. So they actually went in through the bedroom window, and that's when the ward uh, police department located the body of, of Lori in her bed still. And uh, obviously she had uh, passed. She was deceased right. at the time. Right. And so uh, they uh, called the state police for assistance to investigate the homicide or the murder or the death of whatever, you know, it was undetermined at the time. But, mm-hmm. but they knew that there were foul play just based on the crime scene. Right. And so the state police then uh, called us on the 27th and uh, asked for help in locating him. And uh, so that's when we got the case and started working it up. Right. And because you guys typically have more resources than a local police department. Right. We had gotten information. And, or, and expertise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So state police had received information that um, he had possibly fled the state. And so with that being the case, obviously that's outside of the jurisdiction of the Arkansas State Police. So they requested our assistance, and um, we uh, just began working the case immediately. We began, you know, of course, as soon as we pick up the case, we began following, you know, every step that he took uh, leading up to and and right after the homicide. And so we worked in tandem with Arkansas State Police on that. Uh, Later, the truck was actually discovered in Roy City, Texas, by, I believe, the, uh, the local county sheriff's office there. Uh, they found that, you know, the LPN, the license plate number on it uh, was still there. Uh, the truck had not been burned. It had not been camouflaged. It had just been abandoned, just, you know, right. literally just walked away from. Right. So once they ran the tag, of course, it gave the quick hit because we had a uh, uh, we had a bolo out for that vehicle. We knew he bolo was in that vehicle. Being, be on the lookout. Be on the lookout. Uh, right. So, yeah, we, according to witnesses that was with Freeman that evening uh, that the murder occurred, uh, we knew that he would be in that vehicle. And so okay. we had... Every every agency in the state of Arkansas, you know, looking for that truck. Right, and is that is that an indication of anything when you find a truck and and he didn't try to hide it, didn't take the license plate off, didn't try to burn it? Is that any kind of an indication? To me, the way I interpreted that, and I've I've been a former police officer, I've been a detective, and the way I view that is is that he's not trying to conceal uh, that he's there. I mean, okay. if, if I'm on the run and I'm trying to get. Uh, you know, from let's say I'm I'm trying to get out of Arkansas and get to Mexico. Right. I don't want you to know the route that I took. Right. I want to disappear. So I would put that truck in the bottom of a lake. I'd set it on fire, roll right. it down a hill. Uh, but there was there was no effort made here at all. Uh, and that that little clue being with the, the phone call that he made to a female acquaintance, the last phone call he made, mm. uh, he told a female, he said, I'm, I'm going to kill myself. I've done a horrible thing. Uh, he asked her to pray with him. Uh, she even said that she heard him vomiting. Uh, said it sounded like he was in a wooded area, and I asked her what she meant by that. Uh, she said it sounded like I could hear like birds chirping, or you know, like rustling of leaves. She right. said you can just, I could tell he was in a wooded area, and she said he was sobbing his eyes out. Uh, she said I heard him vomit. Uh, we said a prayer together. I told him I loved him, and uh, and he said bye. And so, and who, who did he call? He called a girl named Michelle Bias, and they had been friends for, um, I I don't know the amount of time, but uh, he made several uh, calls to her that evening. Uh, Later when we met with her and and talked to her about that, she said a lot of it was just him saying that he was in trouble, uh, that he didn't know what to do. He wouldn't elaborate on what he had done. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then the last phone call, she she told us that, you know, he told her, I've killed Lori. Uh, I've done a horrible thing. I hope I think he even said, you know, I hope God forgives me on this. And then he asked her to pray with him. And so that coupled with the fact that the truck was just abandoned, it wasn't concealed, just shows that, you know, this is the end of the line for me. I'm not trying to uh, to hide anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that led us into a future operation called Operation Backtrack, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But uh, it was just those little clues that he wasn't making any effort to hide his whereabouts. So. Right. That's an indication that he's serious about killing himself. Yeah, since we had that, that conversation, I mean, yeah, so uh, of course we're still, we don't just take that at face value, right. take it for granted and go, right. okay, he was dead, you know, we can wrap this up. Uh, so we, you know, <laughs> the, the marshals have the old mantra, dead or alive. So this is one of those cases where not to mean, you know, uh, we're out there hunting them down and we're going to bring them in dead or alive, but this is one of those cases where if he is dead, if he did commit suicide, we have to still find those remains. We have to provide that closure. Um, and that means serving that warrant, even if it's on a, on a deceased right. fugitive. So, okay. um, so, you know, the search continued and, you know, we began, um, you know, looking into other aspects of, you know, did he end his life there in those woods? 
uh, or did he leave that area and, and catch a ride with someone and he's on the lam somewhere? So, right. What did you determine was the next step for your investigation? Well, so for us, well, when the truck was discovered, of course, the, uh, the agencies that discovered it, they brought in, I believe, Texas Rangers appeared on scene. Uh, they had other agencies there, and they, they searched the area surrounding the truck. Uh-huh. Uh, and when I say area, I probably mean about a, um, like maybe a 200-yard area uh, uh-huh. uh, circling the truck there. They did find a glove that I believe the mate was inside the truck. They found a glove uh, away from the truck near a roadway. Uh, the truck was kind of driven off of the roadway until just a little patched wooded area like i said it wasn't driven down into a ravine it was if you drove by you saw it um so they found the truck there they brought out a dog uh i believe it was a just a tracking dog uh-huh. so it's tracking human scent uh, the dog kind of sniffed around couldn't really get a good bead on anywhere um so it didn't like lead us to a point to where uh you know there's brian freeman sitting by a tree where he shot himself or you know, led to a roadway and then stops like he got into a vehicle. Right. So we didn't have anything definite there. Uh, so they just wrapped up and said, okay, you know, he must have gotten a ride out of this area and we got to find him. Um, so by doing that, we um, um, later when we said, okay, we need to go back and look because it, it was two years later after us following literally hundreds of tips trying to locate Freeman, we thought maybe we need to go back to ground zero. Maybe we need to go back to that area and, and dig a little deeper, search uh-huh. a little further. And uh, so you know, for, for two years, you're looking, you're looking for clues and he's off the grid. Right. I mean, it's, he is literally, there is no single sign of life whatsoever after March 23rd of 2017. And, it, that, it, and that's, that kind of supports the idea that he took, that he may have taken his life. Right. You know, usually if I, if I'm, when I'm tracking a fugitive, I'll get to someone's house and they'll say, oh yeah, I I saw Billy Bob two days ago. He was here, but man, I don't know where he went to. Okay, cool. That's, that's my last step there. Right. And I, and I keep getting those steps until I find my guy. In this case, I've got no one that can say, oh yeah, Brian came by the house, you know, on this date and, uh, and man, I gave him 20 bucks or, or we, we, we followed hundreds of calls of people saying, I saw Freeman at Walmart. I saw Freeman over here at the Dollar General. Right. I can't tell you how many hours of, of surveillance tape I've watched from anywhere from a Mexican restaurant in a little desolate town in, in Texas to Walmarts where I've gone and pulled the security cameras and, and you know, looked at the right. dog food aisle. And normally you, you guys talk about establishing someone's pattern of life. Right. The things that they do on a daily basis, right. the people that they talk to, how they behave right. uh, on a daily basis. And all of the deputies that I've spoken to basically say, look, 95% of the people cannot break their pattern of life. Right. And if they do, then this is a... A special fugitive right right I mean even I've been I've been doing this for going on 12 years now and and even though I know how it works it would be it's hard to get off the grid it's hard to disappear it's, it's not as easy as the movies make it out to be uh, you've really got to put some planning and effort into it and and from what I know about Brian Keith Freeman he's not that type of person right he was a um, um, he was a, a mooch. I mean, he uh, if he had a cigarette, it's because he bummed it from somebody. Right. His mother told me if he had $100 in his pocket, it's because I gave it to him. I mean, he was very codependent on uh, on everyone. Um, he took advantage of friends. He took advantage of Lori. Uh, I mean, he, he lived in Lori's home. It was, it was her right. home. And, you know, he moved in. So given what you've said, it would be highly unlikely that this guy would be able to do something like change his pattern of life so completely. Right as to give no indication of right. his existence or his whereabouts. Right. Especially with the spontaneity of this crime, because it's not like, you know, it's not like him and Lori had been uh, separated for a year. And this whole time he's been planning out, I'm going to kill Lori Hanna. This is the way I'm going to do it. I've got all these steps in place where I can escape. That didn't happen. This was an act that was, this was a spontaneous act. Uh, he had called Lori earlier, you know, professed his love and she rejected him. And it was, it was one of those, uh, I'm not even going to call it a crime of passion. It was just that he saw red. His jealousy took over, and he said, that's it. You know, I, if I can't have her, no one can. And and he went and committed this act. So he didn't have the pre-planning, the steps in place to to elude capture the way he's done. So it's been two years, and the trail is cold. Right. So, yeah, two years, you know, like I said, we're following every lead we can, right. talking to everybody. And the thing about Brian Keith Freeman, too, um, you know, for your listeners, if you go to uh, the Facebook page, Justice for Lori, um, 
on on there you can see pictures of Brian Keith Freeman, and un- unfortunately he has a very generic face. Uh, he has a very I mean you can see him uh, anywhere. Um, I've had people that's interviewed me on this case, and I wear a ball cap with the the bill kind of rounded down, and I've had an interviewer literally look at me and go, "Dude, you look like Brian Keith Freeman." And you know if you look at the picture, you have one sitting here in front of you. You know if I wear my ball cap, I, I look like this guy. Right. Um, you know, I, and I can see this guy. I can't tell you how many times I have seen him in a crowd. My wife and I will be on vacation or, you know, we'll be somewhere and I'll catch the glimpse of the guy over in the corner. And all of a sudden, you know, the blood starts pumping, heart starts racing. And I'm like, oh my God, that's Freeman. You know, and, right. and you know, it's just, I see him everywhere. And, I, right. and that's, after all this time, I literally see him in my sleep. Uh, so it's, it's, it's one of these cases that haunts you, uh, you know, and with it still being open like this, you know, I, I really don't want to end my career with the marshal service when I retire and, and not having closed this case. Right. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. So then after two years, you decide what? Well, so after that, we just kept we, we kept looking and saw that there were no signs of life, nowhere that we could pinpoint him. And so we like, all right, we need to we need to regroup. And so we, uh, you know, Kevin and I sat down, we roundtabled this. And, uh, and another deputy, Dylan Nichols, uh, he's been uh, highly involved in this case. We all sat down and said, where, where do we know for sure he was? And, and every, every single thing we had all pointed right back to Roy City, Texas, where that truck was. Uh, we know that he called um, uh, the girl Michelle Bias from there. We know that he called another girl named Melissa Brock from there. And we know the truck was found there. Everything matched up to there. And he said he was going to kill himself. So then we began to plan Operation Backtrack, uh, and that became a, a, I think, probably the largest manhunt that we've uh, conducted out of eastern Arkansas. Of course, it was conducted in Texas, uh, but it was probably one of the largest ones that's ever been conducted out of this office. Like Jeremy said, we had exhausted a lot of our, you know, avenues that we were looking into and, and just came up with a plan like, hey, you know, we wasn't physically there to do the search. We know that other law enforcement agencies conducted a search, but we wasn't physically present. So technically we, w- we wasn't satisfied with, you know, with just assuming that it was searched okay. properly. Right. So that's when we just decided to, you know, uh, to go down there and search it ourselves. The, the dog teams and all that, that was never in play at the beginning um, because, you know, we just didn't even know if that was a, a, a resource that we had access to. Right. So you're going to, so you're going to do a super saturation in the area where the phone call came from and the truck was found. So what is that? What does that operation look like? So like Kevin said, you know, we wanted to, to see for ourselves because we didn't, we weren't aware. We know that the agencies that showed up down there, uh, they had, they brought a dog, but right. for all we know, that could have been some Belgian Malinois that's trained to bite. Uh, we okay. didn't know if it's a true track dog. So we right. wanted to put our eyes on it. We wanted to put our resources at it. And that way we could either, A, find Brian Keith Freeman, or B, we know where he's not. Right. Um, and so um, Operation Backtrack, if I'm not mistaken, this was the largest search warrant ever conducted by the United States Marshal Service. Um, I, it covered two federal districts. Uh, it covered 5.7 square miles. And, and the part of the brainstorming, you know, we all agree we need a cadaver dog. Uh, we, need, uh, we need a dog that knows what it's doing, that's trained to find human remains and, and get them on scene. So I made a phone call to an old friend of mine at Little Rock PD, and uh, they used to work with the canine program, and I asked them, I said, hey, do you know anybody around here has got a uh, cadaver canine we were going to take down with us? And they told me, they said, well, uh, I don't, but I know a guy that, that does. And so 
I got in touch with another person. I believe he was with the Arkansas State Police. And he said, man, I don't do cadaver dogs anymore. Uh, He said, but... Uh, there's a group out there called Commun- Community United Effort, and he said and these guys specialize in, in tracking or in, in locating human remains. He said, I believe they've even recently found like an infant that was um, like buried at a church somewhere or they couldn't locate or something. I mean, gave me this great story. And so I get on Google and I start researching and I, and I find this group. I made a phone call to uh, the number on there and, I, and uh, the lady that founded the group is named Monica Kaysen. Um, and I believe I either spoke with her or I first spoke with uh, Laura Reed there and, and told them what I was doing. And I said, hey, I've got a large plot of land, a uh, large area that I need to cover, and I really want to uh, go down there and see if I can find a dead fugitive. And so got to talking to them, and they said, well, this is going to require more than one dog. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I took for granted. I pulled up the area on Google Earth where uh, Brian Freeman's truck was located, and I, and I just kind of circled an area. And I said, that's the, that's the part we need to see. That's within walking distance. Google Earth, when you get boots on the ground and you're standing there in the wooded area in right. a swamp with briars and all that, it looks a lot different. And it's a lot bigger than <laughs> it looks on Google Earth. So <laughs> thankfully, these people were the experts on this and said, yeah, we're going to need more than one dog. So right. uh, she we're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah, we're going to need a bigger boat. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, Laura, she told me, she said, well, how about I bring in 20 plus dogs? And I was like, are you kidding? Like, you can do this. <laughs> So, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, as with any federal agency, what's this going to cost? Right. Um, you know, how am I going to present this? Because this is just going to be an outrageous cost. I've got to be able to present this and justify it. Um, and again, a lot of this is I'm going on a hunch, you know, is, right. you know, I'm, I'm trying to rule something out. So I didn't know if I'd get approval for this. Uh, and Laura then told me, she said, you know, we don't charge. Um, and I'm like, okay, so what's the catch, you know? And, <laughs> right. and, uh, and she told me, you know, we're, that they were a, um, uh, private organization, you know, nonprofit that they, they, they work off donations. Um, and so just, just a phenomenal group of people. Um, later when we got boots on the ground there in Roy city, Texas, we, we set up our command post at Bucky's, uh, first time I'd ever been to a Bucky's and uh-huh. I'll have to say too, the people at Bucky's there in, in Roy city were phenomenal. They, they would keep us fed, bring us ice if we needed it. I mean, the managers were always coming out there. Even Bucky, the little beaver guy, showed up out oh, there and wow. took pictures with some well, of us. Well done, Bucky's. <laughs> yeah. Not a sponsor of the podcast <laughs> yet. Yet, yet, yeah. <laughs> phenomenal, phenomenal group. But uh, but no, once I got, once got to meet these these individual uh, handlers and their canine, just a phenomenal group. Right. I, I enjoyed walking around with them and watching the dog work, watching the handler work with the dog. Um, well, co- let me let me just bring in Laura Reed. Uh, this is extraordinary that uh, there's an organization out there that helps law enforcement, but more astounding than that, free of charge. And not just one dog, uh, not just two, but you assembled a team of 23 dogs? Yes, I did. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. Tell, t- talk for a second a little bit about the dogs and, and the organization and where do these dogs come from? What kinds of breeds are they? I mean... This is uh, all basically an excuse for me to talk about dogs. So, um, so you know, please tell us about the organization. Uh, well, Q Center for Missing Persons was founded in 1994 by Monica Kaysen that provides uh, resources to law enforcement to help in, in solving the missing person case from the newly missing person to the cold, cold cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, our organization has... Uh, canine teams, investigative teams, caseworker teams, uh, horse patrol teams, drone teams. Uh, we can get, we have availability of, of a myriad of resources that are free to law enforcement. Let's just and, say that again. We, Let me just say that again because the price is extraordinary. It's free. You bring all this to a scene at the request of law enforcement. And it's free. That's correct. Wow, that's extraordinary. Well done. Our mission is that every missing person is someone's child. No matter what their age is, every Mm -hmm. missing person is someone's child. And our goal is to locate that missing person. Right. So talk about the team that you assembled for this. The canine teams that that, that I assembled were all seasoned canines. that ranged all the way from Arizona to North Carolina to Florida to Ohio, uh, Texas, Oklahoma. We had 
dog teams from all over the United States mm-hmm. involved in the search. And what kinds of breeds are these dogs typically? Uh, we had German Shepherds, Belgian Malinois, Border Collies, uh, Weinerimers. It's basically the herding breed dogs. The herding breed dogs uh, are, are what the best uh, tool to use as far as their nose because their nose is the most important part of the dog. Their, their agility, their temperament, their strength, their drives uh, are, are important in order to get a dog that will focus on the target odor that they are searching for. How long does it take to train a dog to be a cadaver dog? Or, or what kinds of uh, scents are they trained to uh, detect? These dogs are trained to, to search for the scent of a decomposing human body. Mm-hmm. And that is the target odor that we use, uh, decomposing human tissue to train these dogs. Right. Uh, sometimes that's hard to get. Uh, sometimes it's it's not so hard to get. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll use me as an example. I've had two knee replacements, shoulders, elbows. Uh, I've had all kinds of surgeries, and, and I've obtained those materials from those surgeries to use as training material for okay. my dog. Uh, that's okay. I, look. I, the first thing that comes up is dedication. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that, well done. Do you guys ever take home any of your own tissue? No, I uh, can't say that I have never no. pulled, pulled a tooth one time and took it home. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're training these dogs, what what kind of range do they have? Is it is it 250 feet? Is it how how far can they detect uh, these scents? Well, I, I can I can speak for my dog. Uh, my dog has has picked up odor from a quarter of a mile off. Really? Uh, it's wow. Just it's just if you get the dog in the right position and with the way the wind is flowing, they are keen to that specific odor of decomposing tissue. That if they can smell it in the wind, they follow the the. It's called a scent cone. And they follow that cone right directly to the point of origin. Right. So you assemble a, a team of 23 uh, teams, and each team is, is, a, is a handler and, a, and then one other person? No, a team is a handler and a dog. I read you all stayed at the same hotel. I would have loved to have been at that hotel. It was a pretty bad hotel, so. <laughs> okay, maybe I wouldn't love to have been, but I would have liked to have been in the lobby at least to greet the dogs in the morning. Uh, I'll just say that. I would have stayed someplace else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how does it work? You go out to the in the morning, and how do you get the dogs on a scent? Sectors are divided up to each team, and the teams are deployed to those sectors and search those sectors and, and come back and, and report what they found or didn't find uh, in those sectors, and then they're assigned another sector to go out and search. It, it's the incident commander is in charge of when the dogs get deployed and where they get deployed. But the, the, the dog handler, when they do get into their sector, is the one that's in charge of the sector. Uh-huh. And did they find, I mean, did, did they find anything? Um, I'm, I'm trying to recall, I, I don't think we found anything specific to, uh, this case, right. you know, but the area was you know, a dumping ground in, in one area where the, the community's local dumping site where they dumped their household garbage and shoes and clothes. And, and it was also in a floodplain, uh, you know, when, when floods happen, other articles get flushed into the area so uh-huh. I'm, I'm not i don't believe that we did find anything specific to this case right. but it does com- it does complicate it when there's when the flooding happens correct mm-hmm. so y'all like like laura was saying um when we had these teams together we would have the the dog and the handler we would also have what we called a flanker uh, one of us uh, the deputy marshal or a task force officer assigned with them and i can remember the team i was assigned to on the very first day uh, we also had a news crew with us. We had our local Fox 16 affiliate here, uh-huh. um, and the uh, the reporter that was with us, Kevin Kelly, and his his cameraman. They they went right through the muck with with us on everything. But the very first day, we had one of the canines alerted in a little creek bed, um, and her um, her sign or signal that she's found something was that she would she would sit on the spot and 
you talk about getting excited. I saw this dog. She circled around, smelled, and then sat down. And there was just a little bit of water left in this in this creek bed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we cordoned off that area. We brought in a uh, the Texas Rangers had brought in some of their group that would do evidence recovery. Uh, they were there. We'd also brought some anthropologists in from the local universities. Uh, two universities nearby uh, uh, had their anthropology guys come out, uh, so we were prepared to find you know remains. Unfortunately, uh, and, and they and the anthropologists are there for the remains. Yeah, yeah, we knew because we needed an expert because uh, unbeknownst to me, you can find different animal remains like a um, um, a bear's claw paw looks just like a human hand. Um, I, I learned that from them. So, huh. um, can we pause real quick? Yep, we had an active shooter. At St. Vincent's Hospital right now, so sure. I gotta go. Okay. Uh, I got two guys there. Go ahead and continue, but I gotta go. Okay. okay. Things are nonstop here. I mean, there. Can, can we say? Yeah. Or? Active shooter right now at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sherwood. Okay. Yep. In Sherwood. Okay. Yep. So right now, Kevin just had to leave because. Um, it seems we have an active shooter now at a local hospital. So. So all right. So it never stops. All right. Let's. Uh, so, so yeah, so we um, uh, went out with these teams. Each morning we would give a brief up, you know, of uh, what areas we needed to cover. Of course, we had uh, areas with uh, uh, that had a greater interest potential. Uh, as Laura can probably tell you, I'm sure she hasn't forgotten, uh, a lot of that place was, was swampy. It was briars. Uh, in Texas, of course, everything is bigger. Uh, so right. the mosquitoes there are freaking huge. The thorns are twice the size they normally should be. Um, you know, and we and we and it was also it was uh, uh, it got pretty warm on a few days, but uh, you know we we drudged through these areas trying to uh, you know locate any kind of human remains, and along with human remains too, um, like Laura was talking about earlier, is we were looking for any article. You know, if if we find a femur and there's a gun sitting there beside it, or a, or a cell phone or something like that, okay, you know that's a pretty good indication this may be our guy. Uh, so not only were we looking for the remains of Freeman, but we were also looking for anything he may have brought into the woods with him, which we know he made a phone call. Uh, we did find an empty uh, box of shells inside of uh, his truck, so uh, no gun. So presumably he had a weapon with him, so we were also right. looking for that weapon. Uh, there was one occasion where we actually went into an older shed and found what appeared to be a rifle. Uh, come to find out later, it was like a, a replica toy. Oh. It was made by a company called Denex. And they actually make uh, replica weapons that look pretty spot on. You just can't chamber around into it. But uh, so everybody got excited when we found that. I can remember one occasion where we were assigned an, an area that um, it was like a, I guess a hayfield before it's baled, uh, really high grass, I guess. Uh, and I remember I was going behind the canine handler, and you know I'm very inquisitive about things that, uh, and I was asking him, you know, how the dog operates, you know, what his background was, and. Next thing I know, like he just breaks the conversation with me and starts yelling at the dog, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And about that time, the dog got sprayed by a skunk. Uh, so uh-huh. <laughs> that was interesting. He had uh, he had come around the corner and nosed right up on a skunk, and so the skunk didn't uh, was offended by that. Right. Um, we also had a um, uh, a medic on uh, one of our we call them OMSU medic uh, operational medical support unit with the Marshal Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have about I guess about a hundred medics across the U.S. and uh, I'm actually on that team. Uh, but since I was the uh, lead investigator on this, I brought in one of my fellow medics, Shelly Sleep. And uh, she was there, and she actually had to provide treatment to these canines. We had some get dehydrated. She had, uh, you know, the IVs on. Uh, we had one canine got pretty bad torn up in some uh, briars. Uh, we had several with thorns in the paws. Uh, so th- these dogs were, were doing, a, I mean, some hard work. Right. Uh, it was uh, it was amazing to watch them work. But, yeah, it was, it was laborious. And how long did the operation last? Operation Backtrack uh, was was supposed to last about five days. We allotted for five days. Uh, I think we ended up going like three and a half. The very last day, it started pouring down rain on us, and we had already covered all of the hot spots. Uh, we kind of went back and um, you know covered some areas, just looking again. But uh, like right. like Laura said, we didn't find anything related right. to to Freeman. So this was, I mean, uh, this is a part of the fugitive hunting game. It's part of it, yeah. I, and like I said, you know, it, I still consider the mission to be a success. Now I know where Brian Freeman isn't. So, right. uh, you know, I know that I can mark Roy City off the map uh, and I can start looking outward. So how did he get out of that area? That's that's the next step I'm looking for. Right. How did he get out of there? He had to have uh, a ride, someone come pick him up. 
Um, you know, like I said, he didn't have weeks to plan this. He didn't have like a, you know, a, a truck hiding in the woods that he would switch out with. It mm-hmm. wasn't like, and matter of fact, during one of the phone conversations he had as he was driving to Texas, uh, he told uh, the woman, he said, you know, I'm, I don't know where I'm going. I'm just going, I'm driving, I'm going to Texas. Right. Uh, and so he had no, no mission in mind. So uh, like I said, unless he just elaborately had all this planned and we don't know that, but all the right. indications are this was uh, a spontaneous act, and he just he he freaked out and fled. Right. Operation Backtrack was how long ago? Happened in 2020, right before the uh, the hit of COVID. Okay. I mean, we were doing all this, and then uh, like literally the next month, COVID hits. Right, and since Operation Backtrack, there's not been any indication that he's even alive. Nothing, not which a, is highly unusual. Highly unusual. I mean, you know. I kind of compare the work we do with like a spider. I mean, we, we build spider webs. We, we look at different things that their pattern of life. What is someone going to do? Where, where are they going to go to? Who are they going to talk to? And the spider web we've built for Freeman hasn't tingled. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no little thing that's going on over here where I can say, Oh, he called his sister and, and now I've got a sign of life from him. Or right. I, I go to a dollar general and I look at the surveillance camera and go, yep, that's him. I missed him. And now I'm hot on the trail again. Right. None of that. None of none, nothing has happened. He, so it would not surprise you if he had, if he was dead, if he had committed suicide somewhere. Well, yeah, right. And, and just like Laura said earlier, the, the place we searched near Roy city, Texas, it's a high floodplain. I mean, there was places on trees that were, at least four or five foot up, you would see the leaves that had swept over uh-huh. the tops of game cameras. Uh-huh. I mean, it was it was a major floodplain. The other thing that was really bad for us here, especially being two years after the fact, was that this there is so much feral hog activity in this area. Just like you can be driving here in, in Arkansas and you can see a raccoon on the side of the road or a possum that's been hit, right. you would see hogs down there in this area on the side of the road where they've been hit by a car. Um, I've grown up here and I grew up in Southeast Arkansas. If to see a hog is kind of unusual. I mean, there are everywhere, but you just don't see them. They don't, they don't like to be around people, right. but there was so much hog activity. And of course, if you've watched any of these, uh, the horror movies or whatever, hogs will eat anything. Uh, and if you've got a, a human sitting there decomposing, a hog will, will take it apart and eat every last bit of it, bones and all. So two years after the fact, uh, you know, we could have feral hogs that have taken, you know, the remains apart and then you've got floods that come through. So, I mean, he could be scattered over the course of a, of a, you know, five mile area. Right. Uh, so that, that uh, there's still, I said earlier that we've checked Roy city off the, off the box and we know he's not there. I'm still reserving, I guess, maybe a portion that he could possibly still be there. Right. Um, I know I've had friends joke with me. They said, man, you'll probably be retired sitting on your porch, you know, sipping coffee and you'll get a phone call that some hunter found a tooth and, and it's him. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope right. we're uh, we're able to find him sooner than that. But uh, it, it was just the odds were stacked against right. us. But uh, as of now, this is this is one of your top cases. This is a very active open case. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look out here on our most wanted board, Brian Freeman's number one, uh, and he's probably gotten the most media attention out of all the cases we've worked here. Uh, we've done several. Um, we did um, in pursuit with uh, uh, John Walsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did uh, Crime Watch Daily with Chris Hansen. Um, Kevin Kelly, like I said, with Fox 16, has done uh, specials on this. Matter of fact, I think he was nominated for an Emmy on his coverage of uh, Operation Backtrack. So um, we, we have put this out there and put this out there. And this is what the Marshal Service considers a major case. So, uh, you know, we've done a lot of moving around on this case. Uh, me and other deputies have actually gone to several different states following up on leads. Uh, this case took a, a wild turn uh, a couple of years ago when we had a uh, Arkansas inmate that confessed to killing Brian Keith Freeman said he had murdered him in Aspen and that he was the one that picked him up from the crime scene. And they went to Colorado and he murdered him there and he wanted to confess because he couldn't live with himself. And I mean, you talk about taking a wild turn. Uh, we got there and got to interviewing this guy and, and it just opened up all kinds of other doors. And if you want to know who he is, his name was Clayton Jackson. Uh, so he was an Arkansas inmate uh, here at the Arkansas department of corrections he wrote a letter to Aspen PD and said that he wanted to confess to a murder that he had done uh, back in 2017, and that he uh, he can't live with himself. He's you know he's found Jesus and he wants to confess his sins and and, and get on with his life. So Aspen PD, I, I come into work one morning and I saw I had a message on my phone. I hit play and uh, it's this Aspen PD officer and he says, uh, Deputy Hammonds, you know I, I looked you up online. Uh, I see that you're the one that's working this Brian Keith Freeman case. And I think I know where Brian's at. 
And so I was like, all right, this has piqued my interest, you know, because this is coming from a law enforcement official. And right. so I, I called this guy and he says, uh, well, man, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah, I am. I said, well, what have you got? And he said, well, we've got a guy that's confessing to murdering Brian Freeman here in Aspen. And I was like, okay, why in the heck is Brian <laughs> Freeman in Aspen, right. Colorado? Right. So he gives me this story. Uh, he said, all I've got is a letter here. Uh, we've always, we've, we've called, I think they did a phone interview with, with Clayton Jackson and he said that he had picked up Brian Keith Freeman in Roy City, Texas. They had driven to Colorado, got into an argument over some money, and that uh, he he executed him, shot him in the back of the head, yeah, threw him in the back of a truck, drove him up on the side of a, of a mountain there in Aspen, and dumped the body. Right. So in Aspen, Colorado, you know, it's covered in snow. Uh, and so he said that we can't get up to where this area is where he's saying the body is at. So we've got to wait until like the, the next spring before we can go out there and see if we can find this body. Mm. He said, in the meantime, I want you to know about this guy and maybe you want to go interview him. So again, me and, uh, uh deputy marshal Dylan Nichols, we, we traveled to the Arkansas department of corrections and we met with, with Clayton Jackson and, Clayton, I, I did my homework on Clayton. Uh, he's he's an unusual character. He's he's got some. Uh, he's he's a definite narcissist. He loves to hear himself talk. He loves to uh, he loves to be the center of attention. Right. Um, and so you know you, when you interview someone, you know we've all watched the old TV shows like Columbo. You, you play on someone's ego. You let them run the show. You mm-hmm. you you be the dumbest guy in the room. Let them be the smartest, and right. they'll they'll spill their guts to you. Right. And so he starts going into this big elaborate story, and, and his timeline made sense. I mean, I was going through and checking. He said that, you know, he picked up Brian. Uh, he said he couldn't remember. He said, man, he, he called me from some unknown number. I can't remember what it was. Uh, and I came by and picked him up. And so we're thinking, okay, maybe there's Brian had a burner phone that we don't know about. Maybe right. he bought some little Dollar General drop phone and was making calls, and we just don't know about this phone. So... Um, he said, man, if you want to, he said, I can tell you the truck that I had. I can, I can tell you the truck that the body was in. I'm sure there's probably DNA still on it. Uh, and we're like, okay. So he he provides us with the information on the truck. Uh, we track this truck down to Wichita, Kansas. It's now in the hands of uh, like an Air Force lieutenant colonel. I think he bought this truck. And so me and Dylan Nichols, you know, we called up headquarters and talked to our people there and said, hey, major case. Uh, we've got some really good information moving on this. We may know where our fugitive's at. We need to go to Wichita. And so me and, uh, me and Nichols made the trip to Wichita. We go talk to this guy about the truck. He lets us have the truck for the day to search it. We took it to a, uh, um, a police, uh, like their police station there to be processed. They had an evidence team come in. And one of the things was that Clayton Jackson had told us that he had actually pulled Brian Keith Freeman's teeth out of his head so they wouldn't be able to identify the body. Uh, and he, I think he said he also burned the fingertips. But he said, man, there's a pair of vice grip pliers that should be in the back of the truck in a tool bag. And it's kind of tucked in a little back area there. He said that the guy that owns it now may not even know about this. So we get there, start processing the truck. The uh, crime scene techs found what they believed to be small drops of blood in the back of the truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, they swab it, you know, send it off for testing, which, you know, as you know, takes a while. Yeah. But um, this is all looking pretty promising. Yeah. I mean, I'm, man, I'm excited. Right. I'm, I'm super excited. And so I'm like, you know, we're, we're about to close this up. Um, so I asked the, the owner of the truck, uh, he comes by the police station. We're telling him what we're doing. And I said, man, I said, did you happen to find a pair of vice grips in this truck? Have you ever seen those? And, and he said, man, um, when I first bought the truck, I do remember there being a pair of vice grips back there, but they were really like rusted up. They, they couldn't be salvaged. So I threw them out. And I was like, oh my God. I said, dude, I, I think those may have been involved in this homicide. And so he's like, oh man, I remember them, but I threw them out. So um, we're thinking, Hey, that, that's, that's matching the story that this guy's given us. So we leave Wichita. We've processed this truck, sent everything off for testing. Uh, we later go back. We interview uh, Clayton Jackson again, and then we tell him, you know, hey, we've processed the truck. Uh, we believe we may have found, you know, some possible signs that what you're telling me is true. And while I was there, I said, man, do you, do you mind taking a uh, – would you take a polygraph on all this just so I can I can know we're on the same page on right. this? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. I'll take one 100%. And so – I used the people there at the Arkansas Department of Corrections. They had a guy on their staff that does the uh, computer voice stress analysis. Um, I don't know the ins and outs of it. Uh, you know, I'm used to the old polygraph machine with the with the right. needle on it. Right. Uh, but the, he, uh, this guy says, yeah, man, I can I can put your guy on voice stress and see if he's telling the truth. So I had him ask uh, Clayton Jackson, do you know Brian Keith Freeman? Did you murder Brian Keith Freeman? Uh, did you leave the body on Aspen Mountain? 
And I think there might have been one other question. Right. So he takes Clayton Jackson back in the room. They're in there for about 30 minutes. He comes back out, comes and gets me, and, and I come in there, and he said, man, you, you guys telling the truth. He, uh, he, he either really believes he did this or he did it. And I'm like, holy crap, you know, this is, this is amazing. You know, I, I, we're good to, we're going we're gonna to close this right, case. Right. So we, again, we start hanging on every word that Clayton Jackson says. He starts telling us about a girl that was with him when this happened, that she was actually with him when he dumped the body. Uh, she's located in Nashville. So Nashville, Tennessee. So again, calling headquarters. We're like, Hey, I got to go to Nashville. got to talk to this girl. And you know, we're going to, you know, put the screws to her and see if she'll tell us right. what happened. Right. We travel to Nashville. We get this girl, uh, you know, hemmed up and bring, bring her into the, the police department there. And she says, yeah, I know Clayton Jackson. She said, he's, he's crazy. You know, he's a, he's an ex-boyfriend of mine. Uh, and she said, he wasn't even really a boyfriend. We were just like pen pals while he was in prison. Uh, she said, he's absolutely a lunatic. And she provides me with a box of basically love letters from him. And he's just, you could tell there's something off on this guy. And so I started catching little holes in the story then. And, uh, you know, of course I'm, I'm not, I wasn't putting a hundred percent stock in the, in the polygraph or the, the voice stress. And so I start questioning things and start looking at different, different aspects of this. And, uh, you know, he told us about a necklace that, that Keith Freeman was wearing. He had pulled off his neck and he had given it to his ex-wife and his ex-wife had given it, sold it to a pawn shop. Right. We called the pawn shop. They verified, yeah, we did get this ring. It was God awful ugly. And you know, it, it, we couldn't even sell it, uh, but they got rid of it. So things were matching up, but then later, um, he started a pen pal relationship with a uh, young lady in, uh, Minnesota. And so what I did is he was actually phone calling her every single day from the jail, talking to her. And I went to the jails and I said, Hey, I want to listen to the phone calls that that's being made right. uh, between him and this girl. So for hours on end, I listened to phone calls. Uh, and you know, I've got friends in Minnesota, but listening to this girl's thick Minnesota accent for hours on end, <laughs> Oh Lord, I almost started talking like her. <laughs> But yeah, so it was, it was rough, but in there, he started saying different things. Like he had told us that, that when they got to Colorado, Brian had bought a, um, uh, a Ford 500 car and that's what he would be driving or what he, what he was driving at the time he was murdered. And, uh, he said, I'd never heard of a Ford 500. It's a weird little car, a little four door sedan. I had never heard of a Ford 500, but during the course of listening to the, the phone calls between him and this young lady, he, he asked her about a car she's buying, and she says, yeah, I'm getting a Ford 500. And he goes, oh, what's that? I've never heard of one. And she says, oh, yeah, yeah, it's this little four-door sedan. He, he literally took that little piece of information and plugged it into the Brian Keith Freeman story. Uh, and and he, he was able to he, – he, if he could write fiction, I mean, he would be a phenomenal writer. But So later what I found out was, was that Clayton Jackson, sitting in prison, was watching TV, saw me doing Operation Backtrack, saw the interviews I was doing, then he began doing his homework on the case, reading everything he could on it, and he just started filling in the gaps, making up a story. Um, hmm. So, yes. Yeah, so, so, but, but he believed it. He believed it. I mean, this guy... That's, that's what separates the wheat from the chaff, though. Yeah, yeah. When I finally called him out on his lies, I mean, I literally brought him into our cell block one day there at the marshal's office, and I put the screws to him. I told him, I said, dude, I know you're lying. I know you've wasted everybody's time here. You know, you've given these families false hope. You know, you're just a right. disgusting individual. And, and he, you know, he, he wanted to sound like he was apologetic, but he is, if I could, if I've met all kinds of different individuals and I would say he's probably one of the truest sociopaths I've ever met. Mm. I mean, he was just full blown narcissist, no signs of remorse, didn't care. He just wanted to be a part of the story. He wanted right. to be somebody. And he's one of these guys that's institutionalized. He, he has no identity outside of prison. He doesn't want to be on the outside. Um, he later ended up getting 40 years, I believe, on the federal side for threatening to kill an FBI agent. I just started writing a letter saying he was going to kill him, kill his family, right. all this kind of stuff. So right. he he wants to stay in prison. He's somebody there. Of course, he probably spends his web of lies in there, and who knows what he's doing right. now. But, right. Wow. But That's, he was just another I mean, weird turn. In the fugitive hunting game, the number of false leads that it's, you have to yeah. follow up with with a passion yeah, and you have to follow all of them. I mean, you, if somebody calls me and says, hey, I saw Freeman at the Dollar General store, you know, in, um, you know, somewhere, Spokane, Washington, right. I've got to get on. I've been on the phone literally at 1 o'clock in the morning calling places going, hey, dude, please go back, hold your tapes. I need to see them. Right. And you go back and you look. And, of course, you know, it, it looks similar to him. Right. But he's such a generic-looking person. Right. And, and and what you have to love about it is people want to help. People want to catch this guy. Um, and, and everybody wants to, you know, you know, do their part to help. And so they call and, 
they usually feel bad because I always try to call them back and say, hey, I checked this out. Unfortunately, it wasn't him. And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry for wasting your time. But, you know, you didn't waste my time. You, 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 you made an attempt because somebody, if he's alive, somebody is standing next to him in a line somewhere and doesn't bother to call because they don't want to waste someone's time. Right. So um, I appreciate everyone that's come forward on this and, and tried to assist. Uh, unfortunately, they've all been dead ends. But, right. uh, you know, it's part of the process. So it's an open case. So let's talk about how people can help right now. I'm, I'm just waiting for my next step. If I, if I, if someone can put me, if someone can say, Hey, I, I know Brian is wanted. Uh, he, he came to my house and, and needed a loaf of bread or he came by and I gave him 20 bucks. If they can put me in the right direction, mm-hmm. you know, if I can get that next step, we can pick this back up and reignite it and go. But right now we've exhausted so many of our, uh, you know, resources. And, and now uh, I don't ever call them cold cases, but now I'm just going back, looking again, going, mm-hmm. did I miss something? I'm, right. I'm having fresh eyes. Look at it. We've got some new deputies here. I'm having them look at it. Um, I've got a guy, uh, that was, uh, over in Mississippi that now focuses on cold cases. I'm going to have him put eyes on right. it. Um, but if people can, you know, go to the justice for Lori, uh, Facebook page, look at it, you know, look at his pictures. Uh, he, has, he very, has a lot of tattoos, a lot of tattoos, very distinctive tattoos. Okay. He's got like, uh, and they're all itemized and listed. And, and so that's fun. justice for Lori L L O R I. Correct. Correct. Okay. Uh, but yeah, and it's, uh, and, and, and you know, and how thank, can people get in touch with you? through that page. I mean, if okay. they, if they, if they go on there and they say, Hey, you know, I may have information, uh, then it, it's a family run website. The family right. always calls me and says, okay. Hey, this person here said this. And, and I'll reach out to that person okay. or they can just call the U S marshals. Uh, if they called, you know, the headquarters, they're going to put them in touch with me. Or if they called U S marshals, Eastern Arkansas here in Little Rock, uh, they'll put them in touch with me and, uh, and we'll, we'll follow up on it. And it's and even for the people here in Arkansas that's familiar with this case, if something has come to mind, something has come to light that you're thinking, oh, it's it's really nothing. I didn't want to bug the police with it. It, it may be something. So you know, reach out, let us know. Uh, there's also some some rewards out for this guy. Um, I bl- I can't remember what the reward is up to right now, but uh, you know, if someone offers information that leads to us, you know, locating him, you know, of course they're gonna they they would be, you know, put in for that. Well. People who've been listening to podcasts have been doing some extraordinary things lately. Yep. Here's an opportunity to to really help law enforcement get a pretty heinous individual off the streets. Thank you very much. This is obviously an important case, something you guys are spending a tremendous amount of time on, so I'm glad that we could highlight it. Also, Laura, extraordinary resources that you brought to bear on this. Go to... Uh, NorthCarolinaMissingPersons.org. Okay. Uh, and... We also have a, a, a tip line that's open 24 hours a day. Okay. If, if, if there's information out there that we forward to, to law enforcement. But the uh, website is www.ncmissingpersons.org. Uh, and the phone number is 910-232-1687. Excellent. Uh, and, and we are there. We're a resource. Learn about this effort, and uh, if you can, make a donation, because uh, what they bring to bear for free, these kinds of resources just wouldn't be available to most uh, law enforcement. Well done. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Jeremy, thank you very much. Thank you. And I thank uh, Kevin Sanders, the boss over here, who has left the podcast to go to an active shooter situation. And finally, Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshal Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees, as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the United States Marshal Service. Be safe, everyone. (laughs) ¶¶